Hey everyone, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to episode 301 of Scale Up. Well, it has been quite a journey and I've had some very awesome guests on the show and I'm delighted to say that today's guest is certainly one of them. It's not every day that you get to have a conversation with a billionaire. So today's guest is John Cordwell, who is a self-made billionaire and the founder of the Cordwell Group, which pioneered the telecommunications giant here in the UK called Phones For You. So not only was he able to build and scale a huge company, he has also gone through the trials and tribulations, if you like, of that journey. And he shares that story in his new book, Love, Pain and Money, which is his personal journey, if you like, to becoming a billionaire. You know, at a very early age, I learned that there were various ways of defending myself against the bigger, older bullies. One was to appear tougher, but there was another technique that I learned. It was sort of fortuitous that I was able to do this, and that was to outdare the bigger boys, to jump off roofs, to do things that were terrifyingly dangerous. Now, what we're going to get into today is many of those accomplishments, but we're also going to go through the things that he found particularly challenging, and he's going to share his principles, the things that he's learned over that journey that's helped him create that level of success. Leadership, the ability to drive, motivate, and create a great group of senior management managers who share your vision and who are absolutely bought in to your business becoming number one. So this is a very dynamic, vulnerable, honest, practical, dare I say it, no bullshit conversation but it's certainly massively inspiring and very moving. And I know that you are gonna get a heap of value out of everything that John shares. So there you have it. I'm not gonna give you too much detail today. This is one of, those, one of those conversations where you should definitely have your notebook and pen ready and take down heaps and heaps of notes because you're gonna get some nuggets that you're gonna be able to take away and I know they are gonna serve you. So without further ado and no more spoilers from me, Let's all welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, John Cordwell. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up. Now, a lot of you know my story. You know that I've been involved in three 10-figure exits, but the truth behind that is that I was the private equity guy kind of behind the scenes doing a bit of orchestration. I wasn't the guy building the thing. I certainly wasn't the guy growing and scaling the thing. And I certainly wasn't the person who founded it all the way through to exit. But today on the show, I have someone who's done that. And I've got someone on the show today who is a titan in the business world here in the UK and globally, and has created an amazing business that was worth billions in its prime. So I am delighted to have on the show with me, Mr. John Cordwell. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure, Nick. Good to be on. So the thing I like about this conversation in advance of asking you any questions is that I know that you are quite vulnerable and open with your story. And I get inundated by people all the time saying, what, is it, what does it take to become a millionaire, let alone a billionaire? So what I'd like to do today, if that's all right with you, is just kind of learn a little bit about the story, the journey, the direction, some of the pivots, some of the upsides, some of the downsides, just so people can understand exactly what it takes to build a business and an empire like you've done. How does that sound? 
Fantastic. Brilliant. Let's kick off with a bit of bit of the backstory. As I was researching before this conversation, I saw a quote, I think that it was actually from a BBC interview that you did, which was something like, my childhood was a constant fight for survival. And a lot of the people who have graced the microphone here have always had some form of story, an origin story, which has usually been a challenging one. So I'd just love to hear kind of how you grew up, all of that sort of thing, which then we'll probe kind of what that's meant in terms of your your ongoing success. Yeah, um, you know, when at the time, my childhood seemed completely and utterly normal. Um, because I think as a young kid, you just cope with the environment and the situation. But there's sort of, a, it was the back streets of Stoke-on-Trent, terraced houses, um, no heating in the house other than a tiny little coal fire in the kitchen where we lived, um, a metal bath on the wall that you brought off the wall. And in the winter, when you tried to lift this bath off the wall, it was so frozen that your fingers iced to the bath. And when you, when you say a bath on the wall, are you talking like literally like a tin? Tin bath. Tin yeah, bath, tin bath wow. On the wall outside. Oh, wow. Okay. And you, you, grasp, you grab the bath off the wall it, it's it was very very cold winters in those days there's no doubt about that um but we all know about global warming of course but we took the bath off the wall and you, your fingers stuck to the iciness of the bath till you got it in the house and then it the stickiness of it came off you put it in front of this tiny little coal fire where my father allowed three pieces of coal on the fire it was barely a flicker it was freezing cold as you got undressed and got into this bath. This bath, we were allowed one kettle full of boiling water. The rest was cold water. Um, one of my very, uh, it's not a vivid memory because I'm only about four years old, but it's quite a strong memory. It's just not that vivid. But uh, the strong memory is of huddling over this coal fire. The bath was right by the fire. I leaned over from the bath because I was freezing cold leaned over from the bath to the fire to get some heat in my body and fell into the fire and burnt all my arm and had to go to hospital okay. with uh, burns all down all down my arm. And that, uh, one of my earliest memories of life, um, certainly earliest memories of the hardships of... But I didn't think... You don't think of it as a hardship. You know, that's your life. That's your life and you get on with it. You have lots of fun, lots of hardship, lots of fun, but... But that, that's life. And, um, and you know, I was in a very, very rough area. Bullying was the norm, um, especially when, like me, you'd got ginger curly hair and freckles. That was a, a great signal to people that they should bully you. It's, uh, you know, and don't we have that today still, for whatever reason, creed, race, colour, uh, peculiar features, anything that singles somebody out can leave them a victim of the of crowd bullying mentality. Yep. And it was exactly like that. And, you know, so I constantly had to not necessarily physically fight, but fight for survival. And, you know, at a very early age, I learned that there were various ways of defending myself against the bigger, older bullies. One was to appear tougher so, you know, what do you do to appear tougher? Well, you start smoking. Okay. <laughs> and you swear. 
Uh, it's funny, really, you know, because I swore like a trooper. I don't swear at all now. It's got to be something extreme for me to swear. <laughs> Let's hope we don't get onto that in the show today. Um... <laughs> but I swore like a trooper. So you, you swear, you smoke. But there was another technique that I learned, and uh, it, it was sort of fortuitous that I was able to do this, and that was to out-dare the bigger boys, to jump off roofs, to do things that were terrifyingly dangerous. And if you could out-dare them and do something more dangerous than they were prepared to do, you earned a bit of respect and you no longer became the gingerhead. You became the guy who was a bit of a hero. And, you know, and that, I, I think those sorts of challenges every day of my life were really developmental and immensely positive. But for any listener out there, I really, really want to stress that I don't advocate a tough life for a kid. Certainly don't want any kid to be bullied. It's a dreadful, dreadful thing for most children. I was just lucky that I had the wherewithal to cope with the bullying, to learn from it, and to gain many, many lessons from it, but, but also to fight against it in various ways so that I wasn't uh, noticeably scarred. I don't think I was scarred at all from it, actually, but it was tough at the time. Well, you learned, you learned some strategies, didn't you? And sometimes when you're in that situation, that's what happens. I mean, I grew up a different situation. I grew up in Australia, but I was bullied quite aggressively as a kid. I used to lock myself in the bathroom toilets during school break because I was getting beaten up as a kid. But I look back at that in hindsight, and people on the show know that story. But I look back in hindsight and I see a lot of gifts if you want to call them gifts, they didn't seem like gifts at the time, but they were things that I learnt back then that allowed me to then make different decisions later on. And one of the things we say on this show quite a lot is that you can only scale a business and to some extent your life by the level of your identity. So my question for you, John, is what was your, what was the definition, if you can think back then of your identity when you were having to battle through those different challenges as a kid? Well, I'm not sure what, what you mean by identity, actually. Do you, do you mean qualities or what do you mean? I mean how you, how, how you would define yourself. So you, you created a, from what I heard, you created a persona, if you like, of being the tough guy because you had to survive in that environment. So, you know, quite often that becomes your identity because that's what you're associating yourself with. Yeah, I don't know whether I would have described myself as a tough guy, although I was pretty tough. Um, I think more as a daredevil. Okay. And I could out-dare 99% of people. And if you out-dared them, you gained respect and you were no longer this uh, this little ginger-haired kid. You were this kid that actually was tough and you know, a daredevil and it gained respect. So I think daredevil is probably, I've never, I've never thought of that question before. I would, what one word would I use to describe myself? But it, yeah, it would be daredevil. Okay, good. And and taking that forward then, because I, I do think, you know, it's quite funny, it's uncanny the number of people who have been successful in whatever their endeavours are that have had a challenging upbringing, right? I think there is something in that because if I think about the, the sort of 300-odd interviews I've done on this show, it's more the the norm than the exception. But but what from that daredevil um, persona or, or how you had to be at that point, um, how did you then take that forward and and take elements of that to help your success? Well, I, I think, firstly, I learned quite a lot about human beings during mm. that time. 
I learned about the cruelty of of human beings at a very early age, and uh, I never thought of it like that. But you know, the kids are cruel all over the place. The kids are cruel. There's not many kids that are truly kind. It's uh, it's one of the things I I t- talk about all the time that we should be taught kindness at school and our how our unkind actions can damage other people's lives. And in some cases, irreversibly, because not everybody like you and I prosper from the bullying and the difficulties. Some of us are scarred forever and never really rise above it. And it marks our life. You and I were very lucky that we'd got the wherewithal to fight through it and come good. So it, it certainly taught me that along with my father and the way my father was quite unfair in the way he treated me, it it taught me that fairness was a crucial part of life and that kindness needed to be a crucial part of life. And it it did shape my thinking. And I, I I absolutely cannot say I lived by kindness. Uh, I think in building my business, I was sometimes probably unkind. I didn't ever want to be. Maybe today even still I am. Uh, I never want to be, but I don't really suffer fools very easily. I don't suffer fools gladly. So, you know, and I always think to myself, you know, if I'm having to have too many tough conversations with somebody, they're not the right person for my business. And that that's something that your listeners need to think when they're growing the business. It's no good bullying somebody. It's no good having too many tough conversations. If you can have conversations that are coaching and helping them through, that's fine. But if you get too irritated or it turns into into an argument too many times, you've probably got the wrong person. It's best to, uh, best to kindly as possible, let that person go and replace them. Uh, but I learned thousands of lessons through life. You know, that's, that's one of them, but there's so many lessons I learned. I, on that point, I wouldn't know where to start. But I was going to say, it's, it's hard. It's hard on a, on a short conversation like we're going to have today to kind of un- unpick your brain, <laughs> if you yes. like, or pick your brain to kind of get all the bits and pieces out. I'll try and do my best to get a few nuggets because I often believe that even just learning one lesson in a conversation like this can make a big difference. But if we, if we, if we move forward a little bit from that upbringing to kind of your early years in business, and then obviously the foundations of when you started phones for you. Just take us through that that part of your um, part of your story. Well, there was a lot of learning curves on it, in it, and I, I have to say I had no real skills. I okay. had I had genetic skills that I was born with and genetic abilities, but I had no commercial skills that anybody had coached me on or helped me to develop because I was an engineer at Mitchell Entire Company for eleven years. It was a great apprenticeship. Um, it taught me every aspect of engineering, which was really, really, you know, a great thing to do. But I was equally frustrated by the lack of commercialism within Michelin. Um, you know, I was very critical inwardly. I didn't really bother with the, I wasn't influential enough to influence the management, but I was very critical of the way Michelin ran the business and was pretty certain that they would not survive uh, running it in that way. And sure enough, uh, the Stoke-on-Trent factory, which employed about 10,000 people when I joined them, uh, dwindled down eventually to virtually none. Um, So they didn't survive properly, although Michelin, of course, survived as a brand. Um, And it's, 
I don't know where to really start on this question, you know, Nick, because let, let me help you. <laughs> but I think what I evolved during the years was, and very rapidly through mistakes, incredibly rapidly, was an immense uh, sense of commercial intellect. Okay. Now, I when people ask me what you need to be successful, for me, it's very, very simple. Uh, the number one thing is, first of all, ambition. Because where do you go without ambition? Ambition is what shows you the path forward. It's what sort of helps to drive you forward. So ambition, but ambition is no good if you don't have that drive. I've heard a lot of people are ambitious, but they're not got the drive. But yeah. drive and passion, that that sort of almost indescribable sensation that radiates from the pit of your stomach through to your fingertips that say, you've got to get it, you know, you really got to fix this, got to do it, got to achieve it. So it's ambition, drive, passion. But if you've got all of those, you can imagine yourself running yourself into the ground and you can very easily run yourself into the ground. So the next one, one of the six critical success factors is resilience, the ability to work immense hours under absolutely infeasible pressure and still survive mentally and physically. So it's resilience. And with those four, I think you can really succeed in life. But then the fifth one to succeed in a bigger way is commercial intellect. Mm. Commercial intellect is very, very different to an intellectual who went to Cambridge. He might have no commercial intellect. But he might have commercial intellect. I'm not saying they don't. <laughs> I, I come from the world of private equity where you've got a lot of MBAs sitting around a table that are great yeah. at spreadsheets, but they may, have, may never have worked in, walked into a factory floor. So don't worry, I know exactly what you mean by that. <laughs> I had a philosophy on MBAs, actually, but I'd offend a lot of people if I shared it with you. But, don't worry, you know, don't worry. <laughs> um, so uh, commercial intellect. And, you know, commercial intellect is always seeing the angle, always seeing how to tilt that playing field so that the ball rolls into the opponent's net eventually. Yeah. And it is that ability to arbitrage, to spot special opportunities and things that sort of suggest that no matter what happens, you're going to win more out of this situation or negotiation rather than lose. There's a confidence behind that too, isn't there? Or a faith or something or belief, maybe belief in yourself. Well, because... I think all of these things, you've got to be immensely confident in your ability to perform these things. Yeah. But the, the the sixth and most important one for scalability, and since you are a scale-up uh, podcast, this sixth one is utterly vital, and that's leadership. The ability to drive, motivate, and create a great group of senior management managers who share your vision and who are absolutely bought in to your business becoming number one. And if you can do that, and you've got those other five critical sex factors, you get to wherever you want to be, you know, wherever the market will allow you to be, well, whatever market you're in. And you go for number one and you don't stop until you get there. Did you set the target to create a company worth billions and for you to become a billionaire? Or was that the byproduct of the focus that you set on just trying to be big, successful? Yeah, it was a byproduct. Absolutely. When I started out, no way on earth could have I, I have ever imagined that 
uh, I was going to become a billionaire. Um, you know, in the first two years of Phones for You, well, it wasn't really Phones for You then, it was Cordwell Communications. It was, a, I hadn't even bought, opened up a shop at that point. But in the first two years, under managers that worked, a manager that worked in the business, the business lost £2,000 a month every month. Uh, okay. Motorola poached this guy and he went to work for Motorola. Other things happened which were a real problem to me in terms of losing key staff. We only had about 10 staff in total on the car sales business and the mobile phone business. I lost three of my key people and we had to redo things. I took over the mobile phone business as a result. And within three weeks, and this was commercial intellect, I turned a £2,000 loss into a £20,000 profit. And actually, we never looked back from there. Now, to answer your question, did I actually see them billionaire? Oh, absolutely not. That You know, nothing could have been further away from my ambitions or dreams. What I saw is building a really successful top-class business that gave the customers great service and that made me a pile of money. But I never dreamt for one mm, moment okay. of becoming a billionaire. No, no, I get that. I, I, I always think it's interesting because people always, again, they reach out to me, they ask questions and the goal might be to become a billionaire. I often say to them, don't focus on that, right? You know, focus on no. service, focus no. on value. Focusing on becoming a billionaire would be like saying, I'm going to go and now climb all the top world peaks in, <laughs> in, in a year. You know, you're not going to do it. Unless Having you, never probably walked up the local hill out the front of your yeah, house, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. What you've got to do is focus on a, forget wealth. What you need to do is be profitable, create a business that's got solid foundations, create a business that gives great customer value, great customer satisfaction, and work like fury. And where it goes, it'll go. And when you get to that point, then... You do really very quickly have to think about how you might scale it up, what you do about recruiting the top people and bring people in and grow. And then your ambition grows, your ability grows, and you you do just, I keep using this word scale up really. I know That's I'm, all right. It's because you're reading the back of my head where I've got it kind of almost imprinted. <laughs> um, I've got so many questions I want to play around here a bit. Um, the first one is, and I want to dive into something you said a second ago, but the first one is, you know, you spent, as you said, 11 years working employed right and 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 obviously you then went off and created this this company what was the point of change to say you know what i'm not going to be an employee anymore i think i can do this myself do it better do it differently was there a point that you made that decision and there was, was there was i was selling cars um as uh, as a sideline from home okay um and I sold them to all my managers on Mitchell Entire Company. In fact, the 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 the, the Mitchell Entire Company was most of my customers, really. So I sold within ten thousand employees, and that that helped me to build a little bit of wealth. Only a little bit, but a little bit of wealth. I then, uh, well, what happened actually? Uh, another uh, bit of bad luck, but it turned into positive at the end. Was that neighbours reported me from selling from home? I'd always kept it very subtle and tried to not inconvenience. There was no horrible old cars. They were all beautiful cars. They were put in my garage, but they saw people come to the house to look at the car. 
and somebody out of jealousy or whatever, this is normally what happens in life, reported me and the planners shut me down so I couldn't sell from home anymore. So I very rapidly and quickly bought a car sales site, which was actually a massive mistake because it was a massive mistake because I was desperate to continue the car sales. And that desperation made me made me actually make a very naive decision because I went to see a car sales site that I knew was for sale. It was on lease and he wanted an, a number for the business. And I subsequent, I agreed it eventually, you know, he played, he played hardball with me. He was shrewd and smart. Old Lenny Shenton, that was, he was smart. <laughs> and he, um, you know, he sold me, ended up selling me this business. And I found out sometime after that he'd been desperately trying to sell the business for a fraction of oh, what no. I I got off to a really bad start. But, you know, you very quickly learn in life, otherwise you go under. Um, and I'd always been, I thought, relatively shrewd and relatively smart. But I think because of the desperation of having my car sales shut down at home, it, it pushed me to make a rash decision without researching and without doing my job properly. Well, sometimes you can get distracted, can't yeah, you? And right? that's another lesson for people. Never let sudden desperation make you do something rash. Mm. Yes, you might have to do something urgently, but this wasn't life-threatening to me. It just meant that my sideline, I'd still got my Michelin job. It just was my sideline gone. There was no real urgency to do anything. I should have taken my time and worked, you know, been smarter. Why do, you, why do you think you, you did it that way? What, what was going on in your head? Well, do you remember? because the car sales were going very well. Okay. I felt I'd had my lifeline cut away from me. I felt, you know, I'd had my future taken away from me and I needed to get my future back. And I've always been a driver, you know, I've got to do it today, not tomorrow. Yes. But sometimes, and I learned this very early on in life, sometimes it's still a philosophy. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. But... If a decision is unclear, truly unclear, never make that decision out of urgency. Think about it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's not like Just don't be impulsive. You know, there's some decisions that you can put off for a week and no harm done. You put the same decision off for a month, no harm done. You put it off for a year, no harm done. And after a year, you think, well, it wasn't a decision that needed making. So there's, a, there's a discipline behind that sometimes, particularly with entrepreneurs who kind of want to, you know, grab onto the next big opportunity or whatever else. But it's such an important lesson. I agree with you because I, I had to learn a few years back to the way it was phrased to me was to slow down to speed up because yeah. I was bang, 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 bang. But yeah. some of those decisions were just rash decisions. And then if I look back in hindsight, they're embarrassing decisions. But I had to then sort of give myself the space to maybe not be too emotionally attached to something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I could you know, I think you're absolutely right. What you need is an absolute sense of urgency, but at the same time, you don't need to let that sense of urgency cause you to make mistakes or be rash. So do it now, do it right, do it first time. But if you can't guarantee that you're doing it right in first time, wait and right. let your sense of urgency take a back seat. Got it. So we've bought this, um, this, uh, car yard for too much money. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's jump into the story from that point. Well, that, uh, as, I, as I say, really, from that point on, uh, I made the car sales a, a success. It wasn't a super success, and it was never going to be scalable. It was never going to be massively successful. I never really liked it because car 
salespeople were not really very well respected. I did my best for the customer. I did my best to do a great service. But, you know, you've automatically got a, a, a sense of people double glazing salesmen and car salesmen and insurance salesmen. They're not really the most respected on the planet. And I, and it wasn't really very scalable. And um, But we did okay. But I was always looking for new opportunities. And then one day I became aware of mobile phones and uh, ended up, uh, trying to find a mobile phone seller. You could not find one. This was an 86. I mean, you, like a shop selling phones. Yeah, well, anybody selling phones. You couldn't find one. Right. You couldn't find anybody, anywhere. Even to the point that Cellnet, one of the biggest networks now, um, we rang BT, who, who at the time owned Cellnet, and asked uh, about Cellnet. BT had never heard of them. Nobody in BT had heard of. I mean, clearly somebody had, but nobody that we ever got through to had ever heard of Selma. Eventually we got through to uh, Selma, and eventually we got through to Motorola. Um, we managed to find a dealer eventually, and I said, how much for one of these Mo Motorola 8000 SEs? And it was £1,500. I said, how much if I buy two? And it was 1350 And I hadn't even... These aren't the bricks, are they? These aren't the ones like in in. Um, you it, know. it was the it was the small brick. Okay, small brick, still big. Still very big. Yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. Gotcha. Sort of that sort of size, yeah. A brick, absolutely a brick, but not the not the really big bricks, the suitcase type bricks. Yeah, good. Uh, okay, we're there. I, we get you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I thought one hundred and fifty pound drop, and I haven't even taught price. You know, he's either stupid and not very good at maintaining margin. Or there's such a hell of a margin in it that actually I can negotiate a lot further. So rather than mm. bother negotiating, I rang Motorola up to see what they would sell me the phones for. They said, uh, no, we can't sell them. You've got to be a dealer. I said, well, send the dealer manager around. He came around, opened up an account, and I bought 26 phones. And they took me eight months to sell. There was no market whatsoever zero what was, the, what was the price point you got off the dealer and you just in terms of understanding the margin i mean was there, was there a lot of margin in these things doing off motorola yeah when you bought them off a of motorola because you said you got you could get well, one for 1350 uh, at the 1350 pounds that the dealer had offered me for yeah if he was shrewd in negotiating his airtime commission he would have been making about 400 pounds of phone right so okay i realized after that most of these phone dealers weren't very shrewd and therefore he probably hadn't got the airtime commission that he should have had and therefore perhaps wasn't making that much but but there was you know there was big commissions to be had and it was a bit of a unique marketplace because volume got you a really great price on the handset and connecting a lot of customers could get you a really great commission on the commission you put a great price on the commission with a great price on the handset and all of a sudden, you'd got quite huge mark margin. You just compounded your margin. Compounded your margin. Wow. And what it enabled me to do very quickly was to sell these phones to be the first one in the UK to sell the 8,000S at £999. Hitherto unheard of, but quite a nice price point once you got below that £1,000. And what I then did was I made carbon, uh, I made uh, copies off a, off a photocopier of flyers with the with the phone on nine ninety nine, 
took a guy to the court car auctions with me while I was buying the cars. He was putting these leaflets, which we were not supposed to do, under every car windscreen wiper. And suddenly I became known as the Motorola man. Got it. So the daredevil thing that we spoke about at the very beginning, which you could also probably say is slightly rebellious as well, starts to come into fruition in your business career here too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've, <laughs> always, I've always been rebellious for sure. Um, but, you know, that, 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 that was no big deal, just putting the flyers on somebody's car window. You know, be, the car auction would not have approved of it. But and it was never ever a problem, and and if it was, we'd go out on the outside of the car auctions and put them on windows parked down the road. Well, there you go, right? There, you see, you'll so, find a way. Um, so, I've got a couple of questions I'm going to throw at you from um, people who I asked before because I'm conscious of your time. The first question I'm going to ask you actually comes from my ten year old daughter. So I said to her today, I said, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing a billionaire, one of um, uh, the UK's most successful businessmen. What's a question, Arabella, that you would like to ask a billionaire? And this is her question. I was quite impressed. She goes, when did his business blow up? Blow, <laughs> like, blow up. Now, you can take that in many ways. I think she means when did it, like we've just talked about the kind of foundations, and I'm going to interpret her question as when did it really start to work? <laughs> in other words, you know, things that you touched just started to work. And, and, you know, there's a little bit like a flywheel where it gets momentum. So let's let's assume that's what she meant. She might have meant something totally different. Yeah, let's well, assume it, never, it never completely blew up, although there were one or two occasions, if, you, if you've seen in Love, Pain, Money, my book, if you've seen in that, the one or two occasions when I was, when it could have nearly bankrupted me for sure, yeah. the action of other people. But it never really blew up. But... Uh, I think blew up in the sense that we're interpreting it from your daughter. And thank you for that question. Arabella, is it? <laughs> Arabella. Arabella. Thank yeah, you. She'll love that. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I, I think the story I've already told when I had the bad luck of uh, losing three members of my business and me having to take over the mobile phone business and finding a way of turning a £2,000 loss into £20,000 profit in one month. I then spotted arbitrage opportunities left, right, and center and ways of growing the business that the manager had never seen. And suddenly I was on the road. Now, after that, there were multiple ideas I came up with, multiple ways that exponentially grew the business. But really that was the turning point, me completely devoting uh, my time to trying to find solutions to the business and grow it. That's again conscious of time, but that two thousand loss to the twenty thousand in a month. What specifically do you remember doing to to have well, that change? It, it was very simple, actually, but nobody else spotted it. Um, the airtime, the airtime companies put a value on the sellout of their airtime company. This is a service provider company who build the customers. They yep. put a value on of about a thousand pounds a customer if they sold out to a network, because that was the one deal that was done, and it was done at about a thousand pound headline number per customer. Now, the biggest seller at that time was a Motorola Transportable, the bag phone, quite a big phone, much bigger than the one I've just talked about. And that Motorola Transportable became in very short supply in Motorola. The service providers enjoyed the best buying prices because they were the people billing the customer. So they got best buying prices from Motorola. That was just their policy. Regardless of volume, service providers got the best price. I got 
the best price amongst dealers, but it was worse than the service provider. What happened was there was a shortage of transportables. And I realized very quickly, because I was paying Motorola much more money, that I could get all the transportables that I wanted. Meanwhile, the service providers who needed the transportable to get a customer on their airtime couldn't get them. If they couldn't get them, they couldn't win the customers that were worth £1,000 each. So I spotted that, went to the service provider and said, look, I'm paying 50, 60, 70 pounds a phone more for my transportables than you are, but I will sell to you at cost price. Yes, you're paying 70 pounds more, but you can win your customer and get your customer on your airtime, which is going to be worth a thousand pounds to you. So you lose 70 to me and gain a thousand in the marketplace. It's a no brainer for you. I'll work for no profit, but what I will get is a retrospective rebate for volume from Motorola of 4%. And doing that, I sold great volume to the service providers. I enjoyed the 4%, which was really turned my business round. And furthermore, I continued for a while being able to get all the Motorola's that I could get. The more I got, the less they got. The less they got, the more they needed from me. It was a <laughs> circle for me and for Motorola the only loser was the service provider because he was paying more for his kit because Motorola was manipulating. Oh, my God. So, so we're going to draw a line under the point you made a few minutes ago about commercial intellect. <laughs> there's an example of seeing the opportunity and there's a bit of deal-making skill in that as well, you know, yeah, negotiating everything. You know, that's the whole of life. It's, it's commercial arbitrage. Well, it's not the whole of life because other things come into it. But if you're in a commercial environment, not a manufacturing environment, commercial intellect and arbitrage, it's just so important to turn losses into profit or profits into bigger profits. Yeah. Well, let's go through a few more questions that have come from a post that I put up on LinkedIn earlier today. So Ian McKenzie said, um, cause I mentioned that, uh, obviously you're a billionaire, <clears throat> excuse me. I said, um, he said, can I have some? So we'll, we'll, we'll do a very quick answer to that and say no. no. However, there was a second question, which was, um, I believe that um, John has said publicly that he'd like to give 70% or thereabouts of his wealth away to charitable ventures. Um, can you ask him about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, immediately I sold the business in 2006. I was sitting on this big, huge amount of money. And straight away, it, it sort of burdened me. I know that might sound really strange to your business listeners, but it, it was a burden. What do I do with it? What am I going to do with this money? I didn't want to leave it all to my children. So in 2007, I decided I was going to give at least half of it to charity. So I put that in my will. Okay. Then uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett introduced the giving pledge some years later, and I joined that just to be a name on their list. And then some years after that, I committed to 70% to charity during or after my lifetime. Okay. But I'd also always, already founded Cordwell Children to uh, to help disabled and ill children all over the UK with any illness whatsoever. I paid all the operating and administrative expenses. So every pound anybody else donated went directly to the children. I then subsequently founded Cordwell Lyme Disease, Lyme Co, which was for Lyme disease sufferers. And then... Actually, only a month ago, I founded Cordwell Youth, and Cordwell Youth is there to help every child that we possibly can in the UK who's at risk from a deprived childhood, from drugs abuse, from criminal behaviour, from sex slavery. And we put a one-on-one -on -one mentor uh, 
who's a volunteer mentor, uh, who's responsible for that particular person to help them avoid any of those pitfalls that they might fall into. And this is going to save the UK government millions in the first instance per year, but hundreds of millions in the long term. It will cut down crime and it will mean that those lives that we help to save from going down the wrong route become good human beings able to uh, contribute to society instead of detract from it. Awesome. Amazing. How do you decide what charitable ventures to get behind? Uh, well, it's generally for people who really are desperately in need. I don't do animals or, you know, it's got to be a human being that's in desperate, desperate need. The charity has to be very, very efficiently run. Mm -hmm. And they don't, I don't like any waste of money whatsoever. And of course, what I've done in my own charitable endeavours where my own foundation charity foundations are i've committed to pay all the operating administrative costs so when people donate it absolutely goes directly to the cause so people have to be efficient i quite like when my money leverages other people's money to do good so it's not all about me just doing everything it's about me joining in other wealthy people other members of society uh, because we're so much stronger if we all join together to make the world a better place because i can't do it on my own yeah, I love that. I love that too. Okay, another question that's come is, um, I believe John has a number of children. Is it, is it six or seven you've got? Well, eight included my sort of adopted son. Okay, eight. Adopted him, but he's my sort of stepson. Fantastic. Well, the question, the question here is, um, does John believe in raising entrepreneurial children? And the answer is no. Ah, okay, this is good. <laughs> I, was, I thought it might have been a yes, but let's let's hear this. Yeah, no. The, the answer to that is very simply, my target for my children has always been the same, which is that they are happy and that they leave a world a better place than they found it. Now, if that means they become billionaires, fine. If it means uh, they, they uh, just live a normal life, fine. All I want them to be is happy and leave the world a better place than I found it. And I never ever wanted them to be burdened my, by my success and thinking that they had got to emulate that success because, you know, without sounding conceited or boastful, how many people achieved my success and why should my children be able to do it? It's just not realistic. They'll find their own success in their own way. And as long as they leave the world a better place, whatever that means in terms of their own personal happiness and success, that's all I want for them. So I took away that and I said, don't try and emulate me. I'm nobody to try and emulate in terms of business success, but try and emulate me in what we do for humanity. Love it. Yeah, because I had I interviewed another billionaire recently who talked about, you know, focusing their children almost all the way from when they're born to being in boardrooms and things like that, which is a very different philosophy. But I remember listening to the conversation thinking that's a bit extreme. So you've just balanced. Yeah, just, <laughs> just to, just to finalise that point, I mean, any of them that want to be commercial, I would encourage them completely. You know, if I thought they'd got the skills and they got the desire and the appetite and the ability, I'd be very, very supportive. I'm just very supportive of anything they want to do from philanthropy. One of my daughters is a, uh, a psychotherapist, uh, and that's giving her immense satisfaction. It's whatever they want to do that is good for society and good for themselves. Yeah, I love that. Okay, last couple of questions. So this is another one that's come from uh, the community. This is an interesting one as well, particularly in, in contrast with your book. Is it worth it 
the, the stress that I'm going to read exactly as it was written, the stress, the pressure, the guilt, the lack of real relationships. This is, this is the question. Is it all worth it? I think the context there is, you know, creating um, such a, such an empire of business. Yeah. I suppose underpinning well, that is what have, what have, a, what have you risked? Yeah. There's an inference there that, uh, people like me haven't create, created real relationships. Um, I was with my first wife uh, for 25 years, three children with her. Um, no, they didn't see very much of me. That's a valid point. Yeah. But we had a deep, meaningful relationship. My relationship with my children was excellent. And uh, the, whatever time I was able to give them was quality time. I don't think any of those children feel short changed by me and i think and i know without doubt they're extremely proud of what i've achieved in a business world but but equally um or even more so in a philanthropic sense so i don't think any of them feel any shallowness in that at all so i don't think it follows that if you're a big success that you don't have depth of relationship not at all but it does mean that whatever time you've got has to be quality time You've not just got the frivolous time to be, you know, a, a, a hour upon hour upon hour, Dad. It's not there. Well, you said it as well. You said that you know one of one of the the values or the traits of your success is working hard, right? You know, Absolutely. and there's exactly. All right, last question for me. Um, how how looking back on everything you've created, how do you want to be remembered? Well, I I, I want to be able to make the world a better place. Now that's that's a huge challenge. And, and I can only do a tiny, tiny amount of that. What would I really like to do? I'd like to get rid of Putin. I'd like to get rid of all of these dictators around the world who oppress people, the Afghanistans, the, uh, the Iranians. I don't mean get rid of the people. I mean, get rid of their regimes. Get rid of these regimes that oppress people. I mean, you know, the, the slaughter of those Ukrainian people is horrendous. But look what's going on in Iran as well now. You know, it's all horrendous. I wish that I'd got the ability or power to influence that. So I can't change that as much as I would desperately like to. But what I can do is do my bit to the maximum of my ability to make what bit of the world better that I can. And I do influence people as much as I can. I've turned my heating off at my home in Staffordshire because every dollar we spend on heating is going into Putin's pocket and it's enabling his war machine to slaughter Ukrainians. I have a Ukrainian family li living with me. I do preach this these gospels, but I live these gospels as well. You know, I put my, my it's money where my mouth is, but in this case, it's my jumper and my coat where my cold body is because i will follow what i'm advising other people to do okay i, I think with that we'll, we'll finish we didn't get on taxes we could have gone on to taxes that could have been another hour but i think what i take away from all of that is you know you're a person of conviction not only have you had success john but you know you want to make a bigger impact from that success which i just want to acknowledge on this show today so thank you and your book um, which is out now, I believe, Love, Pain and Money, The Making of a Billionaire, available from Amazon and all good bookstores. Uh, actually, do you, do you like to promote Amazon or are you, are you an anti-Amazon? I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'd like Jeff Bezos to join the Giving Pledge and give and pledge 99% of his wealth away, which 
when I actually first went out saying that would have left him with a pitiful three billion pounds oh. left or his family. You know, he wouldn't be able to go and buy a Starbucks coffee with that, would he? No, you'd never survive on three billion. <laughs> so uh, think what a hero he would have been. So no, I'm an Amazon fan. He's done a great, great job. I just wish he was a bit more philanthropic. But, uh, you know, but I hope, really, really desperately hope that people buy my book because it'll help change children's lives. But hopefully as well, it might just help change their life in some small way or even in a bigger way. And therefore, there's a learning in it that might inspire and enable people to live a better life, a happier life, a more successful life. Awesome. Well, John Caldwell. Thank you very, very much for your time today um, and, and sharing so many different points of wisdom in business and also life. Uh, it's been great having the time with you. So just want to applaud what you've done and, uh, and say a thank you from myself and behalf of all of our listeners. Thank you, Nick. It's a great pleasure. And I hope you get back on number one soon. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, Click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.